let's start with our motivation. And again, really appreciating our life, appreciating the possibilities we have with our life, realizing the preciousness of having met the Dharma, and the preciousness of our having interest in the Dharma. The ability to hear teachings, to have the time to think about them, practice them, meditate on them. So really appreciating this situation and have a very strong determination to make uh, to make use of it, to not waste it. the best way to make use of it is to generate bodhicitta and wisdom amass the two collections of merit and insight so that we can attain the two Buddha bodies, the form body and the truth body and so for that long term purpose we're here this evening you know 
uh, when to practice what. Otherwise, we really can receive so many different teachings on so many different topics, and we can't put them all together. So, this way enables us to put them in all together into one person's practice. Um, and it also enables us to see what we do at the beginning, what in the middle, what at the end. Yeah. And so then we may have the long-term motivation of bodhicitta, the aspiration actually of an advanced practitioner, and we keep that in the back of our mind, but we know that at this present time we really need to work on the practices of the initial uh, capacity practitioner because that's the level we're on. Okay. So, um, you know, having it structured like this is, is quite wise because if, if a person um, who's actually of the middle scope Here's the teachings of the initial scope. There's, there's no problem because they're, you know, reviewing something. They already know, strengthening that, and then hearing their middle um, capacity teachings. Someone who's advanced capacity, if they, you know, study the teachings in common with the initial and the middle, then that's fine too because they're reviewing those things that are in common with pe the people who just do that level. And then they, of course, practice their own level. For the initial level, uh, initial capacity being, you know, having it structured like this is, um, kind of prevents them from getting egotistical or um, putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. So if you're an initial capability, you, you do that practice because if you jump over that and you start doing the middle or advanced practice, what happens is you often get confused and um, can generate strange ideas. And then even what you were developing at the initial level doesn't get properly developed and can, and can backslide. And you don't develop anything at the middle or the advanced because you know, you've gone into calculus before you, you know how to add. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about this this afternoon because I've seen so often in the West the way Dharma is presented now is, you know, I'll just present everything all at once, you know, give everybody access to the highest teachings. And, of course, everybody thinks that they're the most advanced practitioner. Um, but then what I've seen happen with, with some people is they do that, they jump into the high you know, the advanced practices. But, well, a few things happen. One is their daily life behavior, behavior doesn't fit that of a, of a Dharma practitioner. <laughs> they know lots of words, they know lots of concepts, they can talk about these high practices, but their daily life behavior doesn't match even the, um, you know, the elementary level of conduct for a Buddhist practitioner. So I've noticed that happen. And a second thing I've noticed happen is even if the people, you know, their conduct is good, they get into these advanced practices very quickly um, and thinking that they're a very advanced practitioner. And then after a while, they say, I'm not getting anywhere. This is all useless. I have all these 
precepts, I have all these commitments, I can't keep any of them, I don't know why I took them in the first place, and I don't want to have them anymore. And then uh, that kind of attitude creates a whole lot of negative karma. Yeah. Whereas somebody who, who really kind of goes slowly and you know, builds the foundation before they build the walls, before they put on the roof, that kind of person um, tends to be more stable in their practice over a period of time. But, you know, this is the thing nowadays. We all want to do the advanced practices, right? Because we are advanced practitioners. So we want the highest thing, the most esoteric thing. Yeah. Uh, and then when uh, somebody comes along and says, well, what about the ten non-virtues and, and stopping those, we just, you know, that's baby stuff, you know. <laughs> Who does that? Don't tell me to stop lying. I'm practicing. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and they're, they're really kind of, yeah, it's sad. It's sad to see that happen. Yeah, so I think it's, it's very helpful. You know, we really need to see what, mm -hmm what our capability is, what level we're at, and practice that way. And, you know, if you go first grade, second grade, third grade in order, some things you can go through quicker than others, but at least you're doing them in order, so by the time you get to calculus, you know what it's about. Okay? So there's nothing really to compete with other people about who's on what level and who's received what kind of teachings. Dharma isn't um, a, a competition to have more initiations than other people or uh, you know, higher teachings than other people. You know, if we're going to compete about anything, we should compete about being humble. <laughs> yeah. Who's the humblest practitioner who doesn't brag about their, their things? Yeah. So now we're going into, um, you know, another section. We already talked about, you know, how to structure the meditation session and, and how to do it on the, uh, how to rely on a spiritual master. Then we talked about the precious human life and then the three, these three capability uh, beings as ways to, to really, um, you know, make use of our precious human life and progress along the path. And now, uh, the next session, section is how to actually take full advantage of it. Okay? And this has, this is, you know, training in the path of the initial, the middle, and the advanced uh, level practitioner. So then, uh, the actual training of the um, initial level practitioner course is the one we start with okay and so the first outline there has to do with generating concern for future lives okay so here I just want to talk about this for a minute because we always hear you know, Buddhism teach you know there's this thing Buddhism teaches you to be in the here and the now you know and you should be here now yeah, remember that book and uh, you know, take out all thoughts of, of hopes and fears about the, 
the, um, the future. So then when you hear that, that the initial level practitioner aspires for a good rebirth, and the middle one aspires for liberation, and the advanced one as, as, aspires for Buddhahood, then we say, but wait a minute, that you know, why all this aspiration, why all these goals? Shouldn't we just be enjoying the present moment? Yeah. So I hear people say that, you know. My teachers have never t spoken about this thing of just be in the present moment. They, they don't have that kind of vocabulary. Um, but, you know, some, some teachers do. And, and then people, why do I aspire for things? Then it's just goals. Like, you know, things to live up to. I should just be in the present moment. Um, or then they hear about, you know, the way to attain pre uh, a, good, a good future life. Yeah, abandoning negativities, creating virtue. And they say, why are we aspiring for a good future life? You know, that's taking us out of the present moment. Shouldn't we just be in the present moment? Okay, so the thing is, first of all, the present moment is that long. So getting too attached to the present moment, like, I've got to be in the present moment, um, you know, and getting attached to it is, isn't the appropriate attitude. But, you know, when we look in our minds, what keeps us from paying attention from moment to moment? What prevents us from paying attention to our own experience? Or paying attention to the Dharma moment to moment? Yeah. Isn't it usually attachment, anger, and confusion mm -hmm. with sometimes jealousy and pride mixed in? Usually it's some afflicted state of mind. And then we're wrapped up in the story we're thinking about having to do with that affliction. Yeah. I, I want to be in the present moment with my boyfriend lying on the beach with this, you know, the sun like this and this like this. You know, we develop a whole scene. Yeah. But we're totally, um, we're in, in um, Never Never Land, aren't we? Isn't that what Peter Cameron? Never, never land. Yeah. And uh, so we're completely into our own fantasy world. Yeah, attachment takes us quite out of what our experience is. And so, uh, so do anger and resentment. Yeah, we're holding on to things from the past. Anxiety takes us out of our experience. We're, you know, making stories, anxious stories about the future. So the idea is that when you care about your future life, then you want to get your ethical conduct, you know, clean and precise. Yeah, because your ethical conduct is the chief determining factor, what kind of rebirth you're going to have. In order to get our ethical conduct you know, in some kind of cleaned up way, so we're not perpetually acting like a jerk. But we have to subdue our confusion 
attachment and anger. So here you see that by caring about our future lives, it helps us overcome our attachment, anger, and ignorance in this life, right now. Because we have to be free of those things in order to keep good ethical conduct, in order to have a good rebirth. Are you following me? Yeah? Okay. So, it's interesting that aspiring for a good life actually helps you be in the present moment more clearly. But then we also have to understand how to be in the present moment. Yeah. Because it doesn't just mean every sense pleasure we have really relishing it here and now. Yeah. I think I've told you sometimes I've gone to places uh, you know where people kind of share their present moment experiences of you know watching a child laugh or tasting a chocolate covered, covered almond or you know looking at the sunrise or any of you know these kind of things and how kind of peaceful it was or exhilarating it was and they use that as examples of being in the present moment. But my question is, how does putting your attention on those things get you any closer to liberation and awakening? Yeah? Especially if you're just enjoying those things with some kind of attachment in your mind. Now, it doesn't get you any closer. Yeah. If we're in the present moment, using our wisdom, being aware of impermanence, being aware of the nature of dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of each moment, being aware of causal dependence, yeah, how each moment is a result of the, you know, pre the previous things and how it gives rise to future things. If we're aware in each moment of the kindness of living beings and generate the wish to benefit them, yeah. So those ways of being in the present moment get you closer to liberation and enlightenment. But just enjoying what you happen to be experiencing in this moment, you know, does it create virtue? I mean, this is, this is the standard we have to use. Does it create virtue? Or is it just paying attention to something that's nice that is transient, come, come, go, go. Okay. So one of the, the um, meditations that really helps us to overcome a lot of this, uh, the, the mental chatter in our mind that takes us away from being in the Dharma in the present moment. Yeah. One of the meditations that's, that is very helpful in that regard is the meditation on impermanence and death. Yeah. Uh, and it's so important that they say if you don't remember uh, death in the morning, you waste the morning. If you don't remember it in the afternoon, you waste the afternoon. 
And if you don't remember it in the evening, you waste the evening. Then some people are going to come, impermanence and death? Why do I have to think about those things? That's awful. I don't want to think about that. It's so depressing. It's so anti-life. It takes the joy out of everything. It's horrible. I don't want to hear about death and impermanence. Yeah? Is there one part of your mind that says that? Yeah? That says, tell me about light and love and bliss instead. You know, not death and impermanence. Not the nature of suffering. I don't want to hear that. Okay. Um, but actually, my experience is, when I meditate on death, uh, you know, every day, and really, uh, you know, and when I'm really into that meditation, uh, my life becomes so peaceful. So peaceful. There's no depression in it at all. If anything, my life feels really vibrant. And it's very peaceful because when I think about death, I, I, it's very clear that it's important not to waste my time. And what are some of the biggest ways I waste my time? Getting mad at people? Yeah, can, I can spend a lot of time being angry at somebody. You know, and like I talked about in the retreat, you know, when you have the judge and the jury and the prosecutor all inside yourself, you know, and I can rerun that trial again and again and convict that person again and again, and then I come up with new charges to indict them with, and I remember things they did to me 20 years ago, and I had that on, and, you know, and I can spend a lot of time on that. And what's the benefit? Misery. Misery. That's the only result of it, you know, because when we are stuck in the, that critical, judgmental mind, we're actually quite miserable. Yeah? I can also spend a lot of time in, um, in attachment, too. Yeah? Oh, let's see. In two months, I'm going to Singapore. Oh, there's this really nice restaurant that this family took us to. Yeah? Do you remember that one? And the food was so good, and I really like that family. And it's so nice in Singapore. I mean, well, it's kind of hot, but, you know, you kind of manage it. Uh, and the food's good. People treat me nicely. You know, as long as I don't have too many interviews where they complain and tell me their relationship problems, I'm okay. <laughs> Yeah, those relationship problems, that's too much. Yeah. Um, you know, and I can do this whole, you know, kind of thing. Oh, Singapore this, Singapore that, Singapore the other thing. Yeah. Oh, Singapore, the place where the aircon works. 
<laughs> Sometimes too much. <laughs> You're freezing. You know, and spend a whole long time, you know, in attachment to Singapore. You know? Forgetting that right now you can't even breathe the air there. You know, the pollution problems from the fires in Indonesia are so bad. But in you know, in your fantasy you forget those those things. But, you know, so we can spend a, a lot of time just on attachment, spend time on jealousy. Oh, they always interview that Dharma teacher in the Buddhist magazines. They never interview me. Why not? I'm just as capable as that guy. Why they interview him and interview me? Anyway, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I know what I'm talking about. What kind of Buddhist teacher is he? You know, I'm a much better one. Which shows exactly how you're a worse one. <laughs> that kind of attitude. Yeah. But you, you know, again, the whole, it could go off on a whole thing about jealousy. So, um, you know, and spend a lot of time on this, can't you? Yeah. yeah. So we each have our own thing that, that you know, we're jealous of, or attached to, or angry at. And of course we think the whole world sees things as we do, but, you know, so, you know, one of you can, can spend hours thinking about what your brother said to you 15 years ago, and I don't really care, you know, because my problem is my brother and what he said to me last year. <laughs> Yeah. So we all always think, you know, our thing is the biggest, is the biggest. So just waste so much time uh, and not come out with anything, really, of any value at all. Okay? But when we think about uh, death and impermanence and realize that we uh, don't have a long time to live and that at the end of our life, our whole life, appears to be as long as a finger snap or a flash of lightning. And I can, I can understand that because I remember when I was very little, one year took a really long time. From one birthday to the next birthday, close to infinity. <laughs> Before that, that next birthday came. Do you remember that? Oh, it took so long from one birthday to the next. Now, it seems like we're just having birthdays every couple of months. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's my birthday already? How did that happen? You know? <laughs> and I remember my parents used, uh, used to say, oh, when you get older, time flies by. And I thought, oh, that's another one of those stupid things adults say. You know? Actually, it's true. <laughs> yeah, do you feel the time is going much quicker now than it did when you were younger? Much, much quicker. Yeah, it was funny, even, even today at lunch, you know, when I was sitting with, with John and Mary Jo, and we were watching the, um, the film of Pouring the Concrete, and I commented to, to Mary Jo, oh, you know, 
those, those two old guys in their 70s pouring the concrete. And she said, yeah, we're old guys too. <laughs> Whoops. You know, kind of, well, I'm 65, yeah, I'm almost there in my 70s. But it's, it's like, you know, your feeling is you're, you're still in your 30s somewhere. And, you know, I look, I look at people who are in their 60s, and in my mind, I say they're my father's age. Yeah, when they're actually my age. How is that? So it, it does go very quickly. So really thinking of, um, you know, death helps us to, to think, how can I uh, really make my life meaningful? Because I don't have forever to live. And it's going very quickly. And I can't go back and rerun anything. If I waste my time, that time is gone. And there's no way to go back and say, you know, well, actually, I wish I didn't spend all that time reading that magazine. I could have used it in a different way because, you know, that time at that point is gone. You know, the karma's created, the, the, you know, we, there's no time machine going back. So this meditation is, is quite helpful for that and for really helping us get our priorities clear. You know, what is really important? At the time I die, and I don't know what that's going to be, how will I want to look back on my life? Yeah. How will I want to look back on my life? Now, I've never heard of anybody, you know, at the time of death regretting that they didn't work more overtime. So maybe I shouldn't push myself so hard to work more overtime. Yeah, I don't even have a job, so I don't have that problem. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know what? What is really important to do in our lives? And so, uh, yeah, it's a strange kind of thing because. Even here, you know, I feel like, okay, it's part of my Dharma practice to be a steward to the land and to take care of the environment and the beings in it. And then sometimes I see my mind get too solid and concrete about doing that. It has to be this way, it has to be that way. And then I remember, you know, 15 years ago, before I even knew this place existed, I didn't care that knapweed grew on this area, yeah? And I didn't care that the forest was overcrowded with, you know, the, too many trees. So, uh, you know, I'd say, oh, well, maybe it's just because now I know and now I consider it mine that, you know, instead of just being rela a relaxed steward of the land, I get a bit too frenetic. Hey, chill out. Yeah, you don't have to do everything all at once. It doesn't need to be perfect. Are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah? So, uh, you know, 
the meditation on death really makes me think, you know, what's important? And it always comes back to the mind. You know, what is important? I can work my whole life to get rid of the nap weed. And when I die, you know, who knows if anybody else is going to continue on getting rid of the nap weed. They may let it all grow back. So if I'm going to work at getting rid of nap weed, I need to make sure I have a good motivation because overcoming the nap weed is not the goal. It's having a good motivation while I'm trying to be a good steward to the land. So, uh, you know, it all, whatever action we're doing, we always think the action is the thing that's so important. And it's really our mind state. So it's, you know, you can, you can pick anything you're doing that looks virtuous and, uh, you know, oh, I need to finish my nundro practice before I die. Let's do those prostrations. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. How many did I get? Oh, only that many. Okay, yeah, now I accomplished this many. How many now if I do that many in those many days, then it'll take me that long to finish it. Mm, yeah, I think I can do that. And you have it all planned out. Is that a virtuous mind? No. It's a mathematical mind. It's not even mathematical. It's arithmetic. <laughs> yeah, it's fourth grade arithmetic. So, uh, you know, we have to make sure when we're doing our number practices that the mind's in virtue and how many we do, and finishing is not the point of it. Although then we go to the opposite extreme, <clears throat> I won't mention names, of, um, you know, <laughs> are you volunteering? Uh, oh, okay. Oh, owning up. <laughs> yeah. Of people who take almost a year to finish their Vajrasattva, even when they're in retreat. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you have to somehow be... Um, realistic about this whole thing. Okay, so uh, so we're getting into this meditation now on death and impermanence. Okay, so it starts out with uh, contemplating the, the six disadvantages of not remembering death and then the six advantages of remembering death and then the nine-point death meditation and then uh, when we usually get into another meditation on death, um, you know, imagining that uh, you're getting the diagnosis and so on. Okay, so let's start out with the disadvantages of not remembering death. Yeah, uh, and so if you tend not to remember death, then these disadvantages may apply to you. Okay, so first one is we don't remember to practice the Dharma. Yeah, when we don't remember death, then we get really busy with all of our worldly activities. I have to go here, I have to go there, I have to do this, I have to do that. And so Dharma gets put at the bottom of the list and we never get around to it. Yeah, of course, if we remember death, then we really see the importance of practicing Dharma. 
Because practicing dharma means creating virtue, abandoning non-virtue. Second disadvantage is even if we're mindful of the dharma, yeah, um, we don't really practice it. We, we, now, we procrastinate. Yeah, so the first one is you're not mindful of it and you just don't practice, period. This one of is your mindfulness, but, you know, this class is going on next week, so I'm tired tonight. Let, we'll, we'll go to the Dharma teaching next week. Yeah. And yeah, I know I'm in a good habit from doing my practice, you know, at the Abbey twice a day, just got done with a week-long retreat. But, you know, I'm going home now, and, uh, and there's all the laundry to do, and, and I'll, I'll get up early tomorrow morning and practice. But tonight, I'm going to give myself a little reward and not practice. That's strange, isn't it? We reward ourselves by losing out on the opportunity to do something wholesome. That's nutty. Okay, third disadvantage is even if we practice, we don't do so purely because our practice gets very mixed with the eight worldly concerns. Okay, so we try and practice, but, and we, we start to do practice, but while we're doing our practice, our mind is distracted by the eight worldly concerns. Yeah, so you're doing walking meditation and you make sure you do your walking meditation near that very good-looking guy, you know? And, yeah, or you, um, uh, you know, you study something and, uh, and then you become quite uh, arrogant about it, yeah? And, uh, you know, now I'm going to become the such and such instructor, instructor at the Dharma Center, and you know, I, I mastered this subject. Everybody will know I'm a master of it, and they'll come ask me for teachings. And be really good. Yeah. So uh, we don't do we practice, but not purely. So let's um, go look a little bit deeper at our old friends, the eight worldly concerns. You know, when I started out, um, Lama Sopa, I mean, he would teach these again and again and again. And everybody talks about, I wasn't there at the sixth meditation course, but apparently for the whole month he talked about the eight worldly concerns. I was there for... I think the eighth one, and he talked about that at least half of the time, you know. Um, but I'm really glad, and I mean, it's painful to hear when and look at your life and see what you're doing in your life. But I am so glad now that he really emphasized that because it it was my beginning time in Dharma, and what you learn at the beginning is very important, you know. And so he really imprinted very deeply, you know, what is the difference between, what, what is the line that discriminates worldly action from Dharma action? Okay? It's the presence or absence of the eight worldly concerns. 
as the presence or absence of the motivation that is working only for the happiness of this life. Yeah? So if something is motivated by the eight worldly concerns, it may look like the Dharma on the outside, but it's not the Dharma because we're not creating constructive karma. We're creating destructive karma because the mind is under the influence of affliction. Yeah, so he really hammered this into us. And like I say, I'm very glad because I meet some people now who have been practicing for years. They've never heard of the eight worldly concerns. And I think, wow, how do you really know what's dharma and what's not dharma if you don't have this schema in front of you to use to check your mind? So let's, let's look at these eight. They come in four pairs. And, uh, and just, you know, when you hear them, think about, ask yourself, how much is my life involved in these? So the first pair has to do with money and material possessions. So feeling very delighted when we get money when we have material possessions, when we have nice stuff. You know, people remember our birthday and give us presents. We, you know, live in a very nice house. We have money and possessions. You know, wealth, yeah? And feeling very uh, happy about it, attached to it, basically. And then the other part of that pair is feeling quite dejected when we don't have the material possessions that we want. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we, yeah, we don't have what we want. So we may all say, well, I'm not attached to my material things. I mean, when I met the Dharma, that's what I thought, you know, because my generation, we just all wore old clothes and everything like that. But I was attached to my old clothes, you know, because I think I've told you, in, in those days, you know, the, the jeans didn't come with ready-made holes the way they do now. So we had to spend time making our own holes. And you couldn't just cut your jeans. That was like, no, that's... You have to wear them out and then find some really cool kind of fabric that you patched your jeans with. And then, you know, you could have some really cool jeans with really nice patches that everybody kind of looked at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was old clothes, but it was a certain style of old clothes that we were quite attached to. So, you know, it wasn't a cocktail dress, but attachment is attachment. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, wealth, material possessions. So, you know, your parents may want a yacht, you may want a yurt, but attachment, you know, when we're clinging to something, attachment is attachment. Okay. Then... Then that one, okay, you know, 
yeah, we have some attachment there. But another one that that actually is more difficult than that is the one about um, having being praised. When people praise us, when people compliment us, when people approve of what we're doing. We feel so good, don't we? Yeah? People say, oh, you know, you're really smart, or you're really good looking, or you're really athletic, or, you know, whatever it is. And, and uh, you know, oh, they're praising me. And your family approves of what you're doing. Yeah? So you know your parents always brag about you to their friends. They're so proud of you. You, and your friends approve of what you're doing and they praise you and you have, you know, a partner who says, I love you, you're the best one in the world, nobody has ever been better than you, you know, and you're just eating it up. Yeah, so that's one half of the, the uh, that one, yeah, you remember that? And then the other half is being dejected when we hear criticism and disapproval. When our family looks at us and says, you got that education and look what you're doing now. Why aren't you out working? You could have a good job, have a, make a lot of money, you know, make the family proud of you. What in the world are you doing? You know, we spend all that money sending you to school so you would have a good life. And what you're doing, you just want to sit and watch your belly button. And you call that meditation. And then all of a sudden, inside, we start shaking, you know. Like someone doesn't approve of me. Someone's criticizing me. They don't think what I'm doing is good. They think I'm, a, I'm bad. I'm misdirected. Or even you, you get yourself here, yeah, and you're kind of, okay, well, you know, I don't have to listen to my parents right now. Thank goodness the Abbey has rules about how often you can call them. So, uh, yeah. But then somebody here at the Abbey says, look at the way you wash that dish. You know, that's not washing the dish. You're spreading germs. Go back and wash that dish again. Or, you vacuum that floor? That floor is filthy. Yeah, what would you do? Trade, you were out in the, the forest and brought in all your stuff. Yeah. Or even somebody doesn't do it like that. They say, oh, let's go work in the garden today. <laughs> you don't want to work in the garden. You don't want to work in the garden? Well, that's too bad at the Abbey. We do what we're told to do. <laughs> yeah, see how they all laugh? <laughs> well, you know, I can wish. Um, <laughs> I'd be happy you do not what you're told to do, but what you feel like, but you pretend to be doing what you're told to do. And <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, but, but somebody catches you. Busted in the forest. You've been out here 45 minutes and you're already taking a break. But, 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 
And then all of a sudden the same thing comes up. Oh, somebody's criticizing me. They don't think I'm competent to wash dishes. Oh no, if I can't wash a dish, maybe they're going to kick me out. Anyway, then there's all these teachings, you know, by Jeffrey Hoppin. I can't understand what he's saying, except when he says, vase. (laughs) <laughs> or table I understand that but what's he talking about this table is created by a latency and the mind basis of all what you know I'm too stupid to understand this and everybody else thinks I'm too stupid too yeah okay so you know, we're very attached to our, our self-image. We uh, don't want people to criticize us. We don't want people to disapprove of us. Yeah? We want everybody to like us. And nobody's supposed to notice when we make a mistake, because we don't. <laughs> and even if we do, they're not supposed to notice. And even if they notice, they're supposed to forgive me. But they're not supposed to point it out to me. Hmm. Attendance at morning meditation. Hmm. Uh, Looks like the X's outnumber the blank spaces. (laughs) What's going on? No, you can't say that. You have to say, have you been sick, dear? <laughs> and then you think, oh, she's giving me a way out. Yes, I've been very sick. <laughs> That's why I miss so many meditation sessions. <laughs> you know, when actually you were oversleeping. But, you know, that's kind of being sick, isn't it? So, um... You know, we're very attached to what people think of us. We don't like disapproval. We want people to think well of us. And that's sometimes even more important to us than having the material stuff, isn't it? What people think of us. Because the thing is, if people don't think well of me, what happens if... person calls me an idiot. What are you doing doing Dharma practice? What kind of baloney is that? Yeah. Don't you know that money is what makes the world go round? What's this Dharma drama? Yeah. And we call. But 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 please like me, please approve of me. Yeah, we all want mom and dad to approve of us. We want our friends to approve of us. Yeah. And then we do backflips so that they do. Yeah. We try and become what we think they think we should become. Just so we get praised. It's a big one, isn't it? This attachment to praise and approval. Then the next set uh, in the four... uh, pairs of a worldly concerns 
is uh, attachment to a good reputation and aversion to having a bad one. So the praise and blame one is like what think people think about you, what, how they act towards you on an individual level. Yeah. The, the reputation one, the fame one, is what your image in society is. Okay. So we all want to have a good image. We all want to be famous. Whatever, um, maybe not too famous. Yeah. But we want to have a good name in whatever we do. And so, uh, yeah, we want to have a good reputation. We want, when we walk by, people to come, oh, oh, walk by. Did you know this? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we want a good reputation. We don't want a bad reputation. We don't want to be known as a loser or a flake. We don't want to be known as stupid, as incompetent. We want to be known as the best. Whatever it is that we're into, we want to be very good at it and be known as the best. So that the whole group of people in that field or whatever it is would look at us and say, wow. And then, we know that we're worthwhile human beings because we're famous. Okay? So we can spend our whole life trying to get a good reputation and being very attached to a reputation. And the thing is, when you die, what happens to your reputation? It goes on the obituary. Meanwhile, you're reborn in who knows what kind of rebirth. So you may have a fantastic obit, but you know, you're know you screaming in pain in your next rebirth because of the negative karma you created. So, um, you know, so these, these two actually, you know, the one of attachment to praise, aversion to blame, attachment to good reputation, aversion to being notorious. Yeah, these, these two sets are very, very deep. And they even say for meditators, you know, a meditator may go far away to do retreat, and they may eat like really lousy food and, and not have very much money or good place to live. But in the mind, Maybe all those people who I left are saying, wow, what a good meditator she is. She's so renounced. She's off doing retreat in this very distant place. And so, meanwhile, you know, I've, we've made sure we have all our nice stuff at our retreat place, but we look kind of renounced, you know. And then we're just imagining all the people in town who are praising us and admiring us for what a good Dharma practitioner we are. You know, or whatever field you're in, you know, wanting a good reputation. And so, you know, you look, some people spend their whole lives, the whole life is spent trying to have a good reputation, you know, worrying about a bad one. 
okay? And perfect, it can't be too well cooked and it can't be undercooked because if it is and we're out at a restaurant, I'm going to send it back. And I'm going to make a big fuss in the restaurant, call the waiter waitress over. I wanted a river steak dripping with blood and look what you gave me. You know, take this back, cook it more. Have you ever been out to, uh, to eat with people who make a big stink in a restaurant? Yeah. Maybe you were one of them sometime? Oh, no, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I'm sorry, you'll feel criticized. Uh, <laughs> yeah? But we want ex the food exactly the way we want it. Okay, uh, so sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches. Temperature control. Okay, it's too hot in this building. Yeah. It's too cold in this building. Yeah. I know I just said it was too hot five minutes ago, but I was having a hot flash then. I'm not having it now. It's too cold now. Turn up the heat, you know. <laughs> and the bed, the bed's too hard. Yeah, I want a softer bed. The bed's too soft. My back hurts. Isn't it? Yeah. I want a, a low bed. The bed's too low. It's too cold close to the floor. I want a higher bed. Yeah. The bed's too high. It's uncomfortable when I have to get up in the middle of the night. The bed's too high. Yeah. I want the right level bed. Yeah. And I want certain blankets. How come at the Abbey every year when we change rooms, I can't take my blankies with me? I like my blankies. <laughs> yeah? And we like nice smooth things to touch. Right? You know, especially other people's bodies. <laughs> yeah? and, and so we're totally glued to, to sense, uh, sense pleasure very attached to it, and we get really bent out of place, out of shape, when we don't get what we want, or when it's an unpleasant uh, sensory experience. And we let everybody know we're unhappy. Right? So that they should know in the future how to take care of me, because I'm the center of the universe. Right. Anybody have these problems with these um, eight worldly concerns? Yeah? We do, don't we? You know, we can spend our whole life revolving around these things. I want this, I don't want that. I want this, I don't want that. I got this, but it wasn't good enough. Give me something else. You know? On and on and on. And yet, does any of it ever make us happy? You know, do you ever have enough material possessions and money? Do you ever have enough praise and approval? Are you ever famous enough? Yeah. Do you ever have enough love and appreciation? Do you ever have a, you know enough sensory paradise? No. We could always use some more. So we're never satisfied. And our mantra becomes more and better. More and better. 
I want more and better. Yeah, and that's the purpose. That becomes the purpose of our life. And who cares how we treat other people? You know, if we're trying to get more and better, we will do anything to get it. Yeah, won't we? If we want something, we will lie to get it. We will connive to get it. We will pester and nag. We will do anything. Yeah, we will put on the mask of all seasons and be a, chame a chameleon. Did I say it right? A chameleon. We become whoever somebody else wants us to be. You know, whatever value system you have. Yeah, I believe in that. That's fine. Just please like me. You know, oh, you believe in something else? Yeah, I believe in that, but please like me. Yeah? So we get totally lost trying to become what we think they think we should be. Yeah? And, you know, are never satisfied. Never satisfied. And then we get all the things we don't like. Cold food. Too much salt. Not enough salt. We complain, we make the people around us unhappy until we get what we want. Yeah. And for what purpose? You know, what's the long-term benefit of that? Yeah. When we die, does any of that come with us? Yeah. Like you were just saying, you know, your reputation, written in a great obit, where are you to enjoy it? Yeah? When you died, the whole family was there. <laughs> They're such wonderful. They praise you, you know, because you have to praise a person when they die. You know, you, you can't. You criticize them when they're alive, and you praise them after they die. Right? Isn't it? Isn't it? When people talk about the dead, oh, they never had an angry thought in their mind. They were always so generous. You know, but while they were alive, oh, you're in such a bad mood all the time, you know, leave me alone and you're so stingy. Yeah. But, you know, when they're dead, oh, so people praise us after we're dead. We have, you know, they praise us. Yeah? Are you around to enjoy all the praise? No. Yeah. They buy us a nice casket, beautiful casket, expensive casket. Because they feel guilty, but they don't say that. They say it's to honor and respect us. And then they have a nice casket. It's all kind of satin, you know? And you're lying there in your casket. They make you up. So you look so beautiful. Yeah? And people walk by. Oh, she looks so serene, so beautiful. Where are you to enjoy the praise? Yeah. Who cares whether we look beautiful in the casket or not? Or whether we have an expensive casket or not? Yeah. We're not even around to care. Yeah. And yet, yeah, so, so you see what I'm getting at? We're so attached to these things. Attached to four things, aversion to the other four. And at the end of the day, it's all like last night's dream. 
Come, come, go, go. Have it, don't have it. You had a question? Yes, I wanted to ask if uh, illness and physical pain are also included. In if, if what? Illness and physical pain mm -hmm. also included in this last one, unpleasant. Yeah, illness and physical pain, yes, are included. Yeah, and this is the, the thing, because illness and pain definitely are going to come in our life, but how do we relate to them? Yeah, can we transform them? Can we transform our mind into something, you know, where we, we say, oh, I'm glad that hurt. It's the, I'm using up some old karma. Now that karma can't ripe, ripen. Are we going to go, oh, it hurts so much. Give me some more attention. Come on, I need more attention. Ah! Yeah. And I'm going to dominate everybody around. I'm going to make the, the whole you know, group of people think that I'm the most important. So they're all running around. Oh, she's sick. Let's get her. She needs this and she needs that and this and that. She doesn't like this. You know, some people, when they get sick, they're in pain. Oh, it's a great attention getter. Boy. Yeah. So it becomes just eight worldly concerns. Yeah. Yeah. And always complaining. Some people, have you met people? Every time you meet them, they're complaining about their health. Oh, this hurts. Oh, that hurts. Oh. You know? I mean, we all have bodies that hurt, don't we? Some more, some less, but um, how much are we going to make a big deal out of a painful body? Okay. Other questions, comments? Yeah. Someone asked, um, wouldn't a kind of practice focusing on present moment experience naturally lead to an awareness of impermanence because we see the fleeting nature of these experiences? Mm. Okay, so if, if you're somebody who's astute focusing on the present moment, you focus on impermanence. But many people, you know, focus on the present moment looking for pleasure. And they find the pleasure and they focus on the pleasure and they don't necessarily... They, they may see the impermanence of the pleasure, but rather than react, with, react to that with wisdom, they react with, oh no, my pleasure is fading away. How can I cling on to it some more? Okay? So, you know, it depends how people look at things, not just what they look at. Because you could look at some sentient being walking down the road with, you know, a mind of desire or a mind of criticism or a mind saying that's a sentient being who wants happiness and not pain. Okay, so it's how we look at things. Okay, so the whole point of all of this, you know, we were talking about the um, disadvantages of not remembering death, yeah, is that we don't practice dharma, 
Well, don't we even remember? Or if we do remember, we put it off. And then if we do try and do it, we get really distracted by these eight. And so if you look, you know, sometimes we can't get to the eight, to the meditation cushion. It's often related to one of these eight worldly concerns. Or even you get to the meditation cushion, you're trying to focus on something, your mind's like all over the place thinking about these eight worldly concerns. So it's really important. Um, if we think about death, then it makes us ask ourselves, how important are these things? You know, if I don't get them, you know, how do I really, are they really the purpose of my life where I should put so much energy and time into getting material possessions and money and praise and approval and reputation and good sense of objects? Is, it, is that really where I want to put my time and energy? Um, or is there something else that's more valuable? And if I put my time and energy into seeking those things out, what kind of karma do I create? Am I kind to other people? Or do I often engage in all sorts of devious things to get what I want? Okay? So the whole idea is, um, with, with these, these eight worldly concerns, to, um, to see how they take us away from the Dharma and how if we remember impermanence and death, then we don't put so much attention on these eight worldly concerns. They, in, you know, in our list of things that are important, they go to the bottom. Because we see that transforming our mind, creating virtue, purification, developing wisdom, developing a kind heart, these kind of things are much more important than the eight worldly concerns. So it's important when you're contemplating this, do not criticize yourself for having these kinds of attachments and aversions. It's not, oh, I'm a bad person because I'm attached to this and that. Don't judge yourself, because judging yourself just gets you stuck in another worldly concern. But just step back and say, yeah, I'm really attached to that, but does it benefit me to be attached? How does that attachment harm me? Yeah. Or look how unhappy I get when I don't get, you know, praise or I don't get, you know, I have unpleasant, I experience unpleasant things. What do I do? What kind of person do I become? Am I creating constructive karma or destructive karma? How do I affect the people around me? Yeah. And then we begin to see, ask ourselves, is it you know, really so important that I get so upset when I don't get what I want, if it has, you know, if it makes me act or think in this kind of way that has all these disadvantages. Okay? So it's not a thing of I'm a good person, I'm a bad person. Don't judge yourself. But just does this, does this attitude benefit me or does it harm me in the long term? Is this, you know, at the end of my life, is it really important that I got this or I didn't get this? Or is it really not very important? Okay. Okay. So, some meditation to do this week? Yes? Okay.
with a spiritual teacher to lead me on the sacred path, and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all outer and inner hindrances, grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable and their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Lusam's teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful tents and gaps of generosity, may you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, Spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West Floor.